The West Coast Traveler is an adventure in itself with content created by professional journalists and amazing photos provided by our readers. WestCoastTraveler.com is the newest travel network exploring all corners of Western Canada and the U.S. You'll see stunning photos and videos, read engaging travel features from around Western Canada and the U.S. Experience all the West Coast has to offer. Begin planning your next adventure. Visit WestCoastTraveler.com. This is the Mojon Sports Podcast. A deeper dive into the great personalities we know and love. Now, here's your host, Bob the Moj Marjanovich. Welcome to MojonSports.com. It's the Moj Bob Marjanovich with you. This is episode 26 of The Bio. We're going to talk to former NHLer Jordan Tutu. An amazing story. The first Inuk player to play in the National Hockey League. Raised in Rankin's Inlet. What a story it is for Jordan Tutu. Of course, it's been chronicled in two books. We'll get into all of it with Jordan Whenever it comes to tires or meeting your automotive needs, I only send my friends to one place, OK Tire in Langley. OK Tire in Langley is more than just tires. It's about complete automotive care, and it's about being treated right by my good friends, the Delaney family. Delaney's OK Tire in Langley, 19863 Fraser Highway, or call them at 604-530-2545. This is the Mojon Sports Podcast. Time now for our feature bio. Here's Bob the Moj Marjanovich. Welcome to episode 26 of the bio on MojonSports.com. And our guest for this episode is former NHL player Jordan Tutu. An amazing story, as we mentioned in the introduction. Toots, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Moj. Thanks for having me. Been itching to get on with you. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Growing up in Rankin Inlet, 2,500 people just like right there on the what, the northwest corner of Hudson's Bay, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Describe that experience growing up. What was it like? From my experience, every kid's dream to, to grow up in an environment with the outdoors like that. That being said, there are two sides to every story. And as a young kid, I had the opportunity to uh, be out on the land, to play a lot of the sports that we had in our community. I would say all in all, an experience every child should have with the abundance of the outdoor life that we live up there. And I think it's great for your mental health. But like I said, there is a love-hate relationship with growing up in a volatile environment. That being said, in my immediate home, there was a lot of chaos. When I look back, it's a time of my life where I learned a lot. I was taught mental toughness. All in all, home's always going to be home for me. I'm never going to forget where I come from, where I grew up. And today in retirement, I feel that it's my duty to give back and to share my story and my experiences that so many people can relate to who grow up on reserves or in, in remote, isolated communities. I imagine the pro and con of it is, like you mentioned, you're out there, you're amongst nature, it's peaceful. Yet at the same time, there's that isolation that could probably wear on a lot of people, particularly, you know, young kids with a lot of energy, right? Absolutely. A lot of our communities are fly in, fly out. And you can't just jump in a car or skidoo or quad and go to the next city because we don't have the means to get there. There's a lot of dark days where 
you know, a lot of our youth think that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And when you grow up in a kind of a bubble, you're kind of sheltered. You only need to know what you need to know to survive that day. And so when I first left home at age 14, it was definitely a culture shock. I've never seen buildings higher than three stories. It's an experience that's hard to describe because when I was writing my book with Mr. Stephen Brunt, I said, you're not going to be able to capture the story unless you experience it with your own eyes and be in the environment. I can talk all, all day long about the hunting and fishing and how great it is to live out there. And a lot of people seem to be baffled by the extracurricular activities that go on in these remote communities. And, and it affects a lot of our youth's mental health. And we talk about intergenerational trauma, and I'm a prime example of that. I chose to stop one cycle and start a new cycle for my immediate family and to give my kids an opportunity to grow up in a safe home. We are going to get into that a little deeper, but there was a quote that I found and it made me laugh and I want to get your take on this. It was attributed to you. For us, fast food is when you shoot an animal and eat it right there. It's not like you have McDonald's and Burger King's in Rankin's Inlet. Give me an example of shooting an animal and eating it right there. It's an acquired taste for one, for sure. I'm a hunter at heart. And by that, we hunt to survive. We don't sport hunt. And so when I'm up there, when we go out on the land, we're coming home with something. A lot of times when you're out there, you could be out there for two days. You can be out there for five days. And I always watch my dad. Every time he was cutting up a caribou, he would throw a slab of tenderloin on the snow and let it freeze a little bit. And then he'd go over and have a piece of it every now and then as he's cutting the caribou. And so for a lot of us Indigenous people, we learn by watching. We're not going to open up a textbook and this is how you are to survive in the Arctic. So I grew up watching. And so when you're hungry, that's what you eat. And it's just the way of life. To me, it's not out of our realm to do that. For a lot of people who come up and go out on the land with us, they've never experienced that. And I think that's part of showing our culture and our traditions and educating your average Canadian on how we survive and what we need to do to survive. Growing up, it's not like you could, hey, let's go to the Canuck game tonight. You're isolated, as we mentioned. Who influenced you in hockey? Was there a team that you followed? Was there anybody that you idolized? What was it about hockey that drew you to the sport? Up there, it's winter, 10 months out of the year. You naturally kind of slap on the blades and away you go. But for me, my father was a hockey player himself. So we spent a lot of time at the rink. He was a arena manager. So I got to ride the Zamboni ever since I was three years old with my dad. So it naturally grew on me. And over time, watching my dad and hearing stories about how great of a hockey player my dad was, I think he passed on some of those genes to his two boys, myself and my late brother, Terrence. So it's always been in our blood. And I think at the age of 14, the transition in my life, I knew that in order for me to move up and play at the highest level, I had to leave home. And one thing my dad always told me was, home is always going to be home, no matter where you go out there. And that was the opportunity that I knew I had to take in order for me to get out of the situation that I was in within our home and to do ultimately what I loved the most. And that was to play hockey. 
you eventually wind up playing junior for the Brandon Wheat Kings. I imagine Brandon, for a kid from Rankin's Inlet, that probably looked like New York to you, right? What was the culture shock like for you just even going to Brandon? Number one, the food, the travel was probably little out of realm for me. As soon as we landed into Winnipeg, never growing up as a kid, we go to Winnipeg. That's about it. Winnipeg was the New York City for me. And then when I made it to Brandon, obviously it's a little smaller city than Winnipeg, but I had great billets who appreciated and respected my culture and traditions. So I was able to bring in my own raw food and slap it on the kitchen table and away I went in front of my billet families. Obviously, looking back, I was naive, right? I was 16 years old. Everything was new to me. And I took it as an ongoing learning process for me. But the biggest thing for me was I always felt like I was an outcast trying to fit in. I was one of the only Native kids in the school. So I had to stick up for myself quite a bit. I grew up wanting to be around my brother. My brother was three years older than me and all his buddies. So I always had to fight my way through stuff to to hang out so i always had it in my blood to, to constantly stick up for myself so brandon was uh, four years went by pretty quick the first couple months i was humming and hawing i was homesick and i remember my brother constantly telling me stick it out it's better if you stay down here and at the time i didn't quite understand why he was saying that but he obviously knew with the situation that we had in our home that it was my best interest to keep living our dream. You lose your brother, Terrence, suicide in 2002. How did that impact you? It almost put a hole in my soul. At that point, 19 years old, in the prime of my junior career, leading goal scorer in the WHL, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know how to think. All I knew was that I needed the game more than anything at that point in my life. I kept telling myself, how could this be? We're right on track to become the first Inuk brothers to play professional hockey. And we had everything going for us. But when I look back, I didn't know much about mental health. We didn't have it in our home. We didn't conversate about our feelings. In my home, you shut the door and you put up with it. For 20 years of my brother's life, he bottled everything inside and and we use alcohol to to suppress our feelings we thought it was normal because everyone did it and eventually my brother couldn't handle it anymore and at 19 years old i didn't know if, if i was ready to keep pushing on i contemplated giving up the game and just withering away and i think that's really when my alcoholism started ramping up because I almost didn't care. The most important person in my life had now been gone. And my mindset was, why do I need to live anymore? I have nothing to prove to anyone because my brother was my mentor. He was my hero. He was my father figure. But everything that he taught me allowed me to keep moving forward, keep marching forward. And I knew that in order for his legacy to live on, I had to believe in myself and do the best that I could and allow myself to have the opportunity to keep my brother's name in the hockey world. I give all my credit to my brother for giving 19 years of my life and learning from him. I still hold him near and dear to my heart and I think of him on a daily basis. What did he teach you? Mind over matter. 
mental toughness, being humbled, and just putting your head down and going to work. My brother was always one when there was an exercise to be done, whether it took him two hours or 10 hours, he got the job done. The way he carried himself, you can depend on the guy to get anything done. It's hard to explain as a brother, you know, it's almost like he didn't have to verbally teach me and verbalize his teaching. I just, I watched him. And for a lot of Indigenous people, you know, you're learning and watching from a very young age. And today I honor Terrence's uh, legacy with sharing our story in the public eye and showing people that with suicide, you may never know the answer. But at some point, you got to be able to move on and learn from that experience to stop one cycle and start a new cycle. And at 26 years old, when I entered rehab, that point in my life could have gone two ways. Either my hockey career would still keep going if I accepted the help, or if I didn't, then I'd probably be six feet under today. More with Jordan Tutu and his amazing story after this. Every athlete is looking for a competitive edge. And you can find one at stokodesign.com. The K1 Embrace system wraps your legs with over 90 feet of high-strength support cables that are directly integrated into an ultra-comfortable compression tape. The cabling is positioned to naturally move with you, supporting your knee when you need it most. You can customize your level of support with two control dials in the waistband. This is the future of knee support. stokodesign.com you're listening to the Mojon Sports Podcast. Got to tell you about my friends at the Clayton Public House. Talk about a great room. Just huge, spacious, plenty of light. The food is unbelievable. And by the way, did I mention they just rented their patio? Check it all out. The Clayton Public House, 5640 188th Street in Surrey. Jordan, you break into the National Hockey League with the Nashville Predators. I look at it and I think to myself, it's like a perfect storm to fuel the alcoholism that you had started to really get into, I guess, after your brother's death. And I say that because, I mean, Nashville, it's a party town. It's a franchise that was just in the National Hockey League. There's a lot of excitement. They're looking for somebody to latch onto. And I think the other thing, too, that kind of comes into play, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you come to a team with a veteran room, maybe there's guys that kind of take you under their wing, but... Nashville was a young group, right? And tell me if I'm wrong, there, there wasn't those veterans around to say, hey, you know what, toots, simmer down a little bit. You got to be a pro. You got to allocate your time. I mean, do you kind of look at it that way? Is it being a perfect storm? Yeah. At that point in my career and that transition, I had just finished my last year of junior and the whole hype of who's this young Jordan Tutu kid? The media blew me up. And when I went to Nashville, times were a little different back then as far as social media, the access to media, period. There were 10 to 15 wily old veterans on every team. That's how the game played. And one or two rookies would make the team every year, not five or six. And the biggest thing was Nashville was a very small market team game was still growing so we got to have a lot of fun when guys said we're going out everyone went out go on the road we're going for dinner everyone went for dinner and as a young kid you watch the veteran guys and that was just the norm right you just fit in and 
Obviously, the game's changed today with social media. A lot of guys are hermits. You can't go out for dinner. You can't go out with the boys because not that guys are doing any wrongdoing, but it's just privacy, right? Like you you can't even go out for a nightcap without being video. And so I think the perfect storm was I had guys like Scott Walker, Jim McKenzie, Jason Allison, the late Greg Johnson. So I had great mentors. Jim McKenzie basically took me under his wing. He'd already been playing in the NHL for 12, 15 years. But a 20-year-old kid, no pressures on me. When you look at back in the day, your first, second rounders made the team, there was no pressure. So for me, as a fourth rounder, I was a role player. I showed up every night, but I was, I was an angry hockey player. So everything just fell into place. And the fear of getting into a fight on a nightly basis was non-existent for me because I was out almost every night and I showed up and I put the work boots on and a lot of us would call that guilty hockey, but everyone did it, right? But as the years went on, the game grew in Nashville and I thought I could still do the extracurricular activities away from the rink. I started to play more and it started affecting my game and I thought that it wasn't personally. But when you're in this fog and this kind of bubble, you start blaming the blame game and, oh, it's, I'm the victim. Everyone's out to get me. And I'm getting called into Mr. Poyle's office every other week. You know, I was probably one of the more popular faces in Nashville. So every time I was out with five, six, seven, eight guys, eight of my teammates, well, I was getting singled out, right? I'd get called in the office the next day while well, you're out partying again. I'm like, so were 10 of my other teammates. Why did I need to throw my own teammates under the bus? I was out in the public eye because I did a lot of charity work. That helped me pass the time. You know, usually you talk to athletes that have gone through dark times. A lot of times they talk about that rock bottom that kind of finally sets them on the right path. Reading about you and doing the due diligence for this interview, there didn't seem to be a rock bottom that I could be aware of, but... It was more of David Poyle and Barry Trotz bringing you into the office and saying, hey, look, enough's enough. You need help. Yes, it was an accumulation of meetings with the coaching staff and Mr. Poyle. And it got to the point where, you know, I was playing the mind games with them. I was showing up. I tell them, look, I got into three fights last night. I did my job. Why does, like, my off-ice antics concern you? But I was living in a fog. Right. I was, uh, I became almost selfish. Yeah, I was selfish in, in regards to trying to escape reality. And so I started not hanging out with my own teammates because I didn't want to bring him down to my level and accumulation of meetings. And after my two day binge mid season, it probably was the 20th time I had been called into Mr. Poyle's office that. I knew that this was going to be the time to really hunker down and take a few steps back and re-evaluate my life, my personal life. As a person who grew up in a home where you don't show weakness, men never back down, men never surrender. It was at that moment where I knew I needed courage more than ever to accept the help that was given to me.
Why that time, Jordan? You mentioned you've been hauled into the office 20 times before. What clicked this time? What light was turned on this time? It was crazy. I was hung to the gills. I was driving down to the rink, and I stopped at this red light, and it was a block from the rink. That red light seemed like it was the longest red light in the world, and it was at that moment where it almost like I got a lightning bolt through my body where... I just threw my hands up in the air and said, that's it. This meeting is going to be different. I had that mindset because they had offered help many times before that. And I always would tell them I can do it on my own. I'll dry out. I'll work it out. But I kept lying and I'd stay sober for a week or two and back at her. At that moment, when I was at the red light, I knew that in order for me to keep my brother's legacy on, to keep my hockey career Whether I was still going to play hockey, I knew I had to do it personally to survive because I was on that downhill trajectory to eventually something bad was going to happen. I walked into that meeting. I had already had tears in my eyes because I knew that they were going to offer the help and I was just waiting for them to offer it to me. More with Jordan Tutu after these messages. Redefine how you lead. Take the next step in your leadership journey with Ignite Management. Become a leader that positively impacts those around you. Create an environment where your team thrives. Be in control of your own development with a detailed analysis of your leadership style, complete with actionable insights and recommendations. Visit ignitemanagement.ca for more info. You're listening to the Mojon Sports Podcast. Jordan, you go into rehab you talk to people that have gone through it and they look around and they go i'm not one of these people when it does hit them that yeah i am one of these people it's a pretty sobering awakening i guess did you go through that process as well you're dead on there because when i walked into the facility it probably took about a week when we're sitting there sharing our stories and i was sitting there and i was telling myself, wow, I'm not as bad as these people. I still had my job. I still had my family, my career. My mindset was like, I'm not as bad as them. So I got it pretty lucky here. But as time went on, I started realizing all walks of life, we all fight a fight no one knows. And when I started digging deeper into my story and sharing and hearing other story, people with substance abuse, very similar stories. As far as experiences in their life, childhood trauma, not having a father figure, and there was a lot of dysfunction amongst all of us. I knew that I had to change my thought process as to telling myself, yeah, I have a lot of similarities to many of these people in here, but fortunately, I still had my career I hadn't hit rock bottom as deep as many of the patients that were in there, but When you let go of all that stuff and you start honing in and zoning in on your mental health, I think that for me, it was about working on myself and not being worried about other patients in there and trying to play the game of, well, I only need to be in here for 30 days because I'm not as messed up as the other people in there who have been in there for three months, four or five months or whatever. But 30 days wasn't enough for me. I needed the game more than anything, right? So I did whatever I had to do within those 
30 days, but it was probably two years into sobriety when I left rehab and then the off season while life started getting harder because I had to find new hobbies. I had to find different avenues to keep my mind off of everyone else partying and having a good time in the off season. So I went through a lot of dark days post rehab and a lot of people who enter rehab think life's going to be fine and dandy when you get out. Well, it actually gets harder. And and I think it's great for your mind to be working that hard because it allows you to dig deep and find the real you uh, rather than uh, surfical stuff where we all know, especially men, when we see our buddies, hey, how are things going? How are you doing? And their response is good, all is well. To me, like these subtle replies, I start wondering and thinking, man, let's talk about it. But it's hard. Where I grew up, nothing was talked about at the dinner table. So I had to learn how to communicate again because I was always one who every time I would try and spit out words, it wasn't exactly what I was thinking. So I had to reprocess my thoughts and articulate them and put them to words. And it took a lot of years. And it's still a work in progress. I still see a therapist on a monthly basis, which just helps me keep in check and help better communicate with my wife my girls, people who I'm attached to and set boundaries, right? I think that's the biggest thing. You come back, you wrap up your career with Chicago, Detroit, and New Jersey. How much of a sense of accomplishment did you feel coming back and being able to play and not having to rely on alcohol to fuel you through the National Hockey League? When I got out of rehab, I was in February, I think, and I had rejoined the Nashville Predators and then the off season came and then I became a restricted free agent. And I didn't know where my career was going to go. Was I going to be the same player in sobriety? Are our teams, our general managers going to put an X on me as a player who is a cancer in the dressing room? So I had to reprove myself almost for the next two years. I remember I signed with Detroit my first year in sobriety and Man, like it felt like every day was a test, healthy scratch, getting bag skated every day. It was almost like they were testing me on a daily basis to see if I was going to fall off the wagon. And in free agency, when you go to a new team, you don't know what's going to happen. My mindset was going in to prove. Now, unfortunately, things didn't work out. Mike Babcock didn't allow me to play my game. We butted heads a lot. And I thought that at that point in my career, I knew that signing with Detroit was going to give me the best opportunity to try win a Stanley Cup. And that's all that I had on my mind. And I sacrificed a lot. That first season, we only had half a season because of the lockout. And I remember on the first day of training camp, but like our training camp was three days long. And I'd been coached by Barry Trotz for the last eight years of the lingo I didn't know Babcock's lingo. He didn't use a board to explain the drills. Guy's been there for 10, 12 years with him. And so it was like every new drill, it was like Babcock was waiting for me to be at the front of the line. And he'd blow the whistle and explain the drill. And then I didn't know what he was talking about. So I'd bust up the drill. He'd blow the whistle, start yelling at me. And so it was like right from... Day one of training camp, we were butting heads. And unfortunately, things didn't work out. They bought me out. I told my wife, I'm like, hey, things might end sooner than, than expected. But 
I'm okay with that because I now am starting to have clarity on that there's more in life than hockey. Summer came and gone. Detroit bought me out. And Lou Lamorello called me in late August. I went all summer without having anyone reach out to me. And I went to New Jersey on a tryout. And Lou called me into his office and he said, look, Toots, I got five guys trying out for two spots on the team. Watch you all your career. Prove to me that you're still an NHL player and you'll be here. And I just put my work boots on, making the team out of training camp. So it's almost like I had to reestablish myself because I went through the whole training camp process, rookie camp, and then so on. So I was in training camp for almost two weeks, where the last 10 years, I just show up to the main camp and away I went. So I had to reestablish myself and I made the team and I told my wife, I said, look, we're going to enjoy New York City. I don't want to talk about hockey when I come home. And it revitalized my career. I got to enjoy life away from the game. You've mentioned your wife a few times, Jennifer. She's seen this entire movie right from, I guess you guys met in Brandon, if I'm not mistaken, right? You talk about a rock that's been by your side. I think there's a big debt of gratitude going towards Jennifer, I imagine. Yeah, there is. And I met her back in my last year of juniors. And obviously, we were really young. And and we'd always connect in the off season. And and it was just a big party. That's what I did. And when I got out of rehab, she was one of the first people that called me and left a message. And I hadn't heard from Jen in five or six years at that point. And we happened to be going to Vancouver to play the Canucks. And it was my first road trip after rehab. I invited out for dinner. I think we went to Gotham's in Vancouver. And just shared a little bit about my experiences in the last couple months. And she basically said, prove to me, because I don't believe this is the new Jordan. And it was a challenge I took on. And we ended up playing Vancouver in the second round in 2011, I think. And we spent a week in Vancouver and we got to hang out a few more times. And season came to an end and I invited her to Kelowna to come for a visit and uh, at that point I asked her to be my girlfriend and here we are today. Jen's seen the worst in me in regards to my alcoholism and she's been by my side and the rock to our family and to our girls. You wrote the book All the Way, My Life on Ice, written by Stephen Brunt. There's another book out on you as well and now you're doing a lot of motivational speaking. I imagine That must be so rewarding in the sense that you're making a difference, not in terms of somebody making a team or not, but maybe someone surviving and getting through a real tough time in their life. Talk a little bit about that and just the impact that you have. I know you're going to be humble, but it's a tremendous impact that you're having on the youth saying, hey, look, I came from this environment and yeah, there's some challenges, but I survived and so can you. Yes, Moj. I feel the game of hockey has given me many opportunities and one of those opportunities being a public figure. And for me, coming from where I come from and having a story that many people can relate to, I feel like it's my calling in retirement to give back to our communities and having the courage to share my experiences. I think One of the hardest things is to allow people into your life and open those doors of communication. And I always tell people, when you're comfortable and content in your own skin, you're able to share your experiences, whether they're dark or victorious. 
I go to these communities and I, and fortunately that a lot of these communities know who I am. And so I constantly tell them, I, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. But here's what I experienced. And here's how I've overcame those mental battles. And, and whether it's Indigenous or non-Indigenous, I think the story is important to share. Because if, like you said, if I can help one person, I did my job. And today I am forever grateful for those doors being open to get out. And I'm not one to advertise where I'm going or what I'm doing. I think when you stay humbled and kind about what you're doing, it goes a lot further than, than trying to impact people for the wrong reasons. Jordan, this has been amazing. I think we could probably go another hour if I wanted to and you wanted to, but it's an amazing story. And every time I think of it, and I just think this tiny little community, the Hudson's Bay and then the National Hockey League and all these big cities and being able to carve out the life that you did and now, of course, impacting so many others. And I don't know if you've had it yet, but you will get that moment. You probably have where somebody walks up to you and says, hey, you know what? You really made a difference for me. And when you get that moment, or if you've had it already, you know the impact that it's going to have. And it'll drive you through a lot of those days where you're stuck in an airport for three hours missing a flight. But you know that it's all worth it when you have people telling you that. So props on what you're doing. It's amazing. And like I said, it's an amazing story. And thank you so much for sharing it with us today. My pleasure, Moj, and I just got to make sure I recognize an individual who has really brought the true Jordan Tutu out in Mr. Mike Watson. I see his company in your background there, Ignite Management. Wadi has brought the real Jordan Tutu to the table and helped, you know, me brand and find purpose in life after hockey. And I constantly talk about his new book that's out, Rise Up. What a great book to read. If you're a leader, if you're a CEO of a company or trying to make your way up, I think this is a great book to read to, because it, it really gives you insight as to looking yourself in the mirror as to how can you be better for your teammates. So kudos to Mike Watson. Love the guy and I can't wait to tell our next fishing trip. Awesome stuff, Toots. We appreciate it. And again, continued success. My pleasure, Moj. Thank you. The Moj on Sports Podcast. For more episodes, check out MojOnSports.com. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media.